Hey fellow album divers, Trevor here. And before we dive into our first episode of 2021, I wanted to take a moment to let Chris Kosich introduce you to the podcast Text, Prose, and Rock and Roll. Check it out. For nearly 75 years, rock and roll has defined generations. Rock and all of its subgenres reflects society, sets the tone of our lives, and helps us discover who we are. Music takes us on a journey, and so do the stories of the people who create and inspire it. Hi, I'm Chris Kosach, host of the music podcast Text, Prose, and Rock and Roll, the only podcast dedicated to the written account of music. From artist memoirs to band bios, we'll bring you firsthand accounts of those who lived the life lifestyle and the experiences that shape their work. It's a book club that rocks, literally. Each episode, or track as we call them, will bring you something different. You might catch a reading or the occasional performance, and what the hell. If there's a great music documentary, we'll cover that too. Because after all, what's rock and roll if you don't break the rules once in a while? So join me, Chris Kosach, for a conversation you just won't get anywhere else on text, prose, and rock and roll. You won't want to miss it when our next track drops, so subscribe today. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Album Divers. This is a podcast created by two music lovers who still remember listening to albums from start to finish the way the artists intended. We give history, track-by-track analysis, and delve into the music lyrics of some of the best albums of the past and today. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Welcome to Album Divers. I'm Shane. And I'm Trevor. On this podcast, we take turns choosing albums to discuss and review. We alternate between one album released this calendar year and one that's been around a while. All right, Shane, and you picked a classic this time to start off 2021. Yeah, man, I'm really excited for this one. Released just over 50 years ago in March of 1970. Today, we will be discussing the iconic album Deja Vu by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Right, I'm really glad you picked this album. This is one of the albums I've probably been listening to longer than just about any other. I think you mentioned in our intro episode that Crosby, Stills, Nash or Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young is one of the first albums that you remember listening to because your folks were fans. Is that right? Yeah, they were big fans growing up and I remember listening to quite a bit of their music. I don't know if we threw in an album and listened to it start to finish, but some of their hits probably showed up on some 60s and 70s compilation albums that we would throw in every now and then. But I do know from going through my dad's record collection that he has this album on vinyl. That's funny you should say that. All right, I'm, I was going to do this later, but I'm going to grab it now. 
This makes for very good radio, obviously, because everybody can <laughs> listen to what I'm showing you. But this is my dad's original vinyl of this record. Obviously, the really unique artwork for this one, and it's really cool for me to pick this up and hold it, knowing that my dad would have been a teenager putting this on the record player when he was young. Yeah, it's 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 cool for us to review an iconic album that is more our parents' generation, their time, but has definitely stood the test of time. Highly regarded as one of the best albums from the 70s, one of the best albums of all time, really, probably top 200 or so on most people's lists. I'm glad we picked this album too because there's so many stories surrounding it that make it really, really appealing. But I will say I had a tough time deciding between this album and the debut self-titled album by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I'm not sure which album I like more. That's to be determined. The reason I picked this one is because I reached out to my dad and said, hey, I'm thinking about reviewing a, a Crosby, Stills, Nash album on the podcast, but I can't decide between the two. And he said, definitely go with Deja Vu because that's that's what he remembered of the group from, from the 70s, that when they had Neil Young added to the mix, that took them to a whole nother level. So I let him be the, the, the tiebreaker and uh, decided to go with this one. And like I said, I'm glad we did because there's so much history about these guys that you learn and some really important monumental times and events in their life uh, surrounding the making of this before, during, and after that really shaped a lot of them uh, for the rest of their lives. I mean, th this album really propelled them in their solo careers too and got them a lot of fans that that, that really that really built them up uh, into the legends that they are today. I was biased, and I'm glad that this is the one you ended up selecting. It's the one I was the most familiar with, and I suppose in retrospect, had you picked the other one, that would have been fun too because a lot of those songs I wouldn't have heard before. This one I was pretty familiar with, at least in terms of the songs. The stories and the history and some of the things that we'll get into was all new to me, or, or a lot of it was new to me. But these songs I knew really well, so I was excited to talk about them with you on the podcast. And then, you know, you got to have Neil Young in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man, he's he's so good. Well, let's get into it. There's a lot of history with this band. We've got a lot to talk about when we get to the track by track. So let's talk a little bit about the lead up to this album and the history of Crosby, Stills, Nash and then Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. So the story of Crosby, Stills and Nash and what would eventually be Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young starts as fragments in the form of three very different bands. You had the Birds, who in the 60s took up residency in LA's Sunset Strip. David Crosby was a founding member, and the Birds were an integral and early part of what would become a protest movement in that time in that region. Meanwhile, another folk band in the same vein, Buffalo Springfield, had begun making music in 1966. Buffalo Springfield was making a name for themselves with their two talented songwriters, Stephen Stills and Neil Young, trading hit for hit. Their biggest song of the era, for what it's worth, became an anthem for the protest movement in the midst of riots on the Sunset Strip and the Vietnam War. 
There's something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down But as important as both of these bands were, both were rife with internal conflict. David Crosby was notoriously getting into trouble. Drugs were playing a large role in his life that were getting in the way of the bird's success. And he was also getting bored. Stills and Young of Buffalo Springfield were constantly trying to pull rank amongst the two of them in terms of which songs would be used, who would have the guitar solo on which track, who would sing, and just about anything else. Fights included screaming, breaking amps, and even throwing chairs. It was a case of a band with two leaders. Young would often just leave when things got too contentious. Both bands were booked to play the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. Due to their internal strife, Young quit the band, Buffalo Springfield, just before the show. So Buffalo Springfield asked David Crosby to fill in, since he would be there with the birds anyway. Crosby jumped at the chance to further frustrate his band members and joined Buffalo Springfield on stage. This was really the last straw for the birds. They fired Crosby. He would dramatically announce he was quitting music forever. He bought a 50-foot schooner and moved to Florida. Buffalo Springfield also broke up not long after this incident. Young went off to work on solo projects and Stills started gigging with Hendrix and Dwayne Allman, but was always keeping an eye out for his next formal venture. As could have easily been predicted, it wasn't long before Crosby resurfaced in L.A. But this time, with a young artist he found playing in a coffee house in Florida, by the name of Joni Mitchell. It was a Chelsea morning and the first thing that I heard was a song outside my window and the traffic Soon Stills and Crosby became friends and started playing music together, getting high and hanging out. They started seeing a potential as a duo. Meanwhile, while all of this was going on in the States, pop group The Hollies were Britain's number two hit-making machine trying to keep pace with the Beatles. Graham Nash wasn't the lead singer, but he was definitely the leader. The Hollies were touring extensively in the States, and it was at one particular show at the Whiskey A Go-Go in Hollywood that brought Crosby, Stills, and Nash together for the very first time. Pulling the strings behind this meeting was Mama Cass Elliot of the Mamas and the Papas. She had recently met Graham Nash while in England, and she also knew Crosby and Stills were both looking to start something new and thought that they might all be interested in getting to know each other. They all got along and Nash became fascinated with the American counterculture. The drugs, the message in the music, and the community were all new and attractive to him. All of this culture centered around Laurel Canyon, an outgrowth of the Sunset Strip. It was idyllic and free. Leonard Cohen, Joey Mitchell, the Mamas and the Papas, Frank Zappa, the Turtles, Carol King, Don Henley, Glenn Fry, and countless others could all be found living and hanging out there, sharing music, sharing drugs, and sharing each other. 
It was at one such get-together of musicians at one of the common houses where people would gather in Laurel Canyon that Crosby, Stills, and Nash were officially born. Now, there are some debates among music historians and even Crosby, Stills, and Nash themselves as to whose house that was. Could have been Peter Tork of the Monkees, maybe Mama Cass Elliot, or potentially Joni Mitchell's place. Wherever it was, there was no debate about the sound. When those three got together and started to sing, everyone stopped and listened. It just felt right. Not long after, though, Nash had to go back to England, but the culture he had been exposed to in the States was now embedded in him. He tried to inject some of that culture and spirit into the Hollies music upon his return, but his bandmates, and particularly their fans, weren't really getting it. Disheartened, in 1968, Nash decided to completely give himself to the sound that he had become accustomed to back in the States. He left his band, his country, and his wife and decided to move to Laurel Canyon. The minute he arrived, Atlantic Records founder Ahmet Erdogan helped negotiate him out of his Hollies record deal so that he was able to sign with Crosby and Stills. Crosby, Stills, and Nash also signed session drummer Dallas Taylor to be a part of their record. As they were signing this record deal, they all decided it was very important that they weren't technically a band, but rather an aggregate of friends governed by consent, not contracts. This was in large part due to the issues that they each had in their prior bands. Their debut album, titled Crosby, Stills, and Nash, made a huge impact. Three-part harmonies weren't really new in popular music because there were already bands like the Beach Boys, the Four Seasons, and even Graham Nash's former band, the Hollies. But this folksy roots version was, was really something new. In terms of its timing, the release of their debut album couldn't have been any better. The year prior saw the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy, the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, and the election of Richard Nixon. The song spoke to these events, and with other songs in that era, they really unified a generation of people. Speak popularity of their first album, a large tour was in order. But they had one problem. Being the perfectionist that he was, Stills played so many of the instrumental parts for the studio album. They realized they would need more musicians for the tour. They asked Steve Winwood, John Sebastian, and Eric Clapton, all of whom said no. Ahmet Erdogan then had a bright idea. What if he asked Neil Young to join the group? Nash and Crosby were understandably hesitant. After all, it was the young Stills dynamic that broke up Buffalo Springfield in the first place. But Stills assured them that it would be different this time. Stills was comforted by two changes since the Buffalo Springfield days. Number one, this supergroup on the heels of the success of their first album was going to make them a lot of money. And two, Stills assumed he would now have the upper hand asking Young to join his band. On Young's side, he had just started playing with Crazy Horse and figured joining a big band could only help his band's notoriety. Meeting with Young immediately won over Crosby and Nash. But they still needed a bass player. 
For this role, they hired Motown bassist Greg Reeves, who was at the time living with Rick James at a place where Nash and Crosby would sometimes visit. They invited him to play and immediately knew they found their bass player. At the time, everyone thought he was just a young 19 years old. Turns out he was actually only 16. After the lineup was complete, they started touring. But this is where personal and procedural issues really started to pile on. We'll talk more about some of these issues as they relate to songs in the track by track. Some of the most notable issues that arose were Young's comments and actions that sent mixed messages about his level of commitment to the group, egos getting in the way of which songs were to be played and whose instrument would be louder, trouble with relationships, and most noteworthy, the death of Crosby's on-again, off-again girlfriend, Christine Hinton, in a car accident on September 30th in 1969. Despite the timing not being the best, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young were still required under contractual agreement to release a studio album after the tour ended. They set to work recording Deja Vu at Wally Hyder Studios in San Francisco, California, a mere two weeks after Christine's death. The effects of power struggle, grief, egos, differing levels of commitment, and of course, more drugs than most people could probably imagine, really shaped the sounds of this album. But somehow, that madness is part of the tapestry of the album, rather than something that ruins it. Each side contains five songs for a total of ten tracks, and each member of the group has one song per side. Side A also features a cover of a Joni Mitchell song, and Side B features a Stills Young collaboration. It's really about as fair as it could have been. Wally Hyder Studios producer Bill Haverson deserves a lot of credit for his patience to keep this group together and make this album a reality. Deja Vu was released March 1970 by Atlantic Records. The album made its way to the top of the pop charts and produced three top singles, Our House, Teacher Children, and Woodstock. A close second to Album of the Year, Deja Vu was edged out by Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. Arguably the greatest accomplishment of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's careers, this album has been ranked in the top 200 greatest albums of all time by Rolling Stone magazine, and it has sold over 8 million copies to date. But it wasn't produced without a lot of hard work. Stills estimates the group spent over 800 hours in the studio recording before finalizing this masterpiece. Part of the reason it took so long is because the majority of the songs were recorded as individual sessions, with each member eventually contributing to the songs whatever the entire group could agree upon. Only three songs on the entire album were band sessions. All the others were combinations where the songs were essentially led by one person using the other people on their tracks. Although it may seem the album was thrown together in a disjointed fashion with a lot of tug-of-war between Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, every member contributed and put their touch on this work of art. And there are moments of magic on this album that could not have been created without the brilliance of all four musicians. Deja Vu is a classic example where the whole album is really greater than the sum of its parts. To set the stage, before we get into the track-by-track -track analysis, let's recap the members of the group and their contributions to the album, and also give a nod to other musicians who made their way onto this iconic album. We'll start with the main four. David Crosby on vocals and rhythm guitar, Stephen Stills on vocals, guitars, and keyboards, Graham Nash on vocals, keyboards, rhythm guitar, and percussion, and Neil Young on vocals, guitars, keyboards, and harmonica. Additional musicians on this album include Dallas Taylor on drums and tambourine, Greg Reeves on bass, Jerry Garcia on pedal steel guitar on the hit single Teacher Children, 
and John Sebastian playing harmonica on the album title track Deja Vu. A lot of awesome details that we found in our research of this album, believe it or not, that is just scratching the surface. We could have gone deeper and deeper, and if you're interested, I certainly encourage you to do so. Go read a little bit more about some of these backstories and relationships. There's a lot packed into this album we'll talk a little bit more about as we get into the track by track itself. But without further ado, the first song is called Carry On. The sky is clearing and the What a great opening track to start this album. I'm not sure if it's my favorite. It's really tough to choose, but it's definitely one of my top three songs from this album. It's a really upbeat, fun song. If you don't know the backstory, if you didn't know the backstory, you would think that's all that it was. But the band was kind of going through a dark time leading up to the making and release of this album. We brushed on that in our intro. That kind of sets the stage for this track titled Carry On. Yeah, exactly. There's a quote by Dallas Taylor, the drummer, that says it was something of a message to the group since it had become a real struggle to keep the band together at that point. And this is one of the tracks that they got out in a, a really short uh, period of time. Stills has stated that from conception to finished master copy of this song, it, it only took about eight hours. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the entire album took over 800 hours of studio time. So a small fraction of that. And maybe that's because the lyrics spoke to all three of them so well, considering what they had, had gone through and they were able to contribute their parts and, and make it complete. Yeah, in contrast to some of the other ones that we'll talk about that took a lot more time to come together, you're right, this one was very quick. And this was the last song that they had written for this album. They, they pulled this together at the end. It was Nash that told Stills that it feels like this album still needs an opener, kind of like Sweet Judy Blue Eyes from that first album. It was with that in mind that they had pulled this together at the 11th hour, and you're right, it's a really pretty song. It opens with the line, One morning I woke up and I knew you were really gone. One morning I woke up and I knew you were That gives me the impression of somebody who's in a bit of denial after, after losing somebody or something. You know, you go through this period where you think maybe they're not really gone. I mean, in the, in the case of Crosby, obviously his, his girlfriend really was sadly gone. You know, that coming to terms with the event. And then the following lyrics, rejoice, rejoice, we have no choice. Kind of saying it is what it is. I guess we have to carry on. Rejoice, rejoice, we have no choice but to carry on. Uh, and then a little bit of hope. Love is coming to us all. Where are you going now, my love? Where will you be tomorrow? Will you bring me happiness? Will you bring me sorrow? That part is intriguing to me. I, I think on one hand, you can take it as him or them thinking of their significant others and where they're at and, and wondering if potentially they'll get back together. But it, it could be a hypothetical new significant other as well. You know, where, where are you, my love, out there in the world? And when will I meet you? Will you bring me happiness? Will you bring me sorrow, etc.? So I think there's a good mix of emotion there from moving on from something 
challenging to having a little bit of hope for the future. I think you're right in that breakout part with just the four of them harmonizing the the carry on, I think is a message to that, you know, love is coming for us all, despite all these relationship issues you touched on. Crosby with the death of Hinton, Stills had broken up with Judy Collins. Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, that first song that opens up the first album, kind of predicts that. It's, it's a song about that. So to start it off with one morning I woke up and I knew you'd be gone as the first song that leads off the second album, maybe somewhat of an homage to that. Joni Mitchell and Graham Nash were together at this point. There was a period where when Crosby discovered her, they were together. But at this point, Joni Mitchell and Graham Nash were the hot couple in Laurel Canyon. But there were issues there as well. Dallas Taylor had just left his wife, and he was now living with Neil Young and and wife Susan Acevedo, whose marriage was also going south. So all of them were just having issues, and they all did really care about each other, despite the tension that they had with creatively within the band. The band had two rules, or I say the band, the, the music collective. As I said, it was important that they didn't think of themselves in a band, but they did have two rules. One of them was whoever wrote the song had the final say, and the second one was if anyone was having relationship issues, that they would go deal with them. So that was important, I think, to start this album off with this song about relationships and about love after all of the other songs that they had written and the difficulty putting some of those together. To have this one be a positive vibe about that and for it to come together quickly probably felt kind of good after so much struggle getting this album out up to that point. I really like that this first opening track gives us that harmony that we we came to expect from the band because as we'll we'll talk about later they've added the addition of Neil Young on this album and he finds his way into the album in what feel more like solo tracks but also collaborating with the group on others but this opening really gives us that familiar sound of Crosby Stills and Nash with the beautiful harmonies that made their first album so good. Yeah, we touched on it a little bit as we talked about the Heart record that was released in 75, so five years after this one. But there was a transition after some of this social, political music in the late 60s and early 70s into some of that more heavy metal rock. And Led Zeppelin, of course, was a huge leader in that. And Robert Plant and Jimmy Page wrote the Led Zeppelin song Friends that came out on Led Zeppelin 3, and it was heavily influenced by this song. If you listen to that song side by side, you can hear some similarities in that guitar part in the opening. I think my favorite part is when they come back from the the jam session in the middle of the song and they all harmonize carry on love is coming that's such a beautiful part to have that start this album off it's kind of an announcement to the world that they're back i really enjoyed that part too very well said i couldn't agree more Also, just musically, I love the channel separation they used to do back then. It's something that you don't hear quite as often now, which surprised me a little bit because more and more people are listening to music on their headphones today than I think they did back then. 
but you hear that really hard pan guitar to the left. I think it's David Crosby that starts this off before some of the other instruments start coming in on the right channel. And it's a really fun listen to have headphones on, which is the majority of what I did dissecting and listening to this album. One morning I woke up and I knew kind of missed that. I wish more current artists were doing that in the production side. Yeah, that's that's really something that was common back then, but you don't hear a lot of it now uh, today, unfortunately. Yeah, not to the same yeah. extent. It's a little bit, little bit less dramatic panning, but there's something that gives a little bit more space, I think. I, I really enjoy it on the headphones. One other thing I really like about this song musically, and this is something that you used to see a lot uh, through the 60s and 70s as well, is the the tempo changes uh, throughout the song from from the beginning to that guitar riff in the middle where they jam a little bit to that carry on section that I mentioned and then it almost changes gears again toward the end of the song you know if you if you jumped in on any one of those sections of the song it would almost sound different than the others or you wouldn't know that uh, musically they were connected lyrically there's some repetition there's there's chorus and, and refrain but musically, it really switches gears a lot, and I think that's pretty cool. It's almost like a few different songs layered together. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that. You're you're right on that, actually. It is some a couple songs put together. Most notably, the chorus of this song comes from a, a song called Questions that Stephen Stills had originally written for Buffalo Springfield, and, and you can hear that song on their last album. But Stills basically took two songs and put them together. So the first section was just a drug-filled jam between Dallas Taylor on drums and Stills on that Hammond organ in a late-night studio. And then that second part is that Buffalo Springfield song. So once they get to that chorus, the questions of a thousand dreams, what you do and what you see, those are the same words that you'd find in that Buffalo Springfield song. Yeah, I like I like that lyrically at the end. You know, it's almost like they leave the door open for rekindling the flame, hashing things out. You know, can we just talk about this and maybe they'll get back together. Yeah, and I wonder too, we talked about the personal aspect for each of the members here and then just putting it back in the time frame of history to hear a band so important to the times singing, carry on, love is coming, love is coming for us all. I wonder how therapeutic that might have felt for everybody listening at that time that felt swept up in this movement, the Vietnam War, with all the social unrest to say love is coming. I think it had personal meaning to them and, and also a greater society meaning to everybody else that was listening and experiencing this album. That's a very good point and a sign of a great song, something we've talked about in the past where maybe there's a specific message related to the group and their lives, but the song can also be looked at generally and applied to other people. And that's what really creates the connection with the music. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, it's a great opener. And we move next into a Graham Nash song. Track two is called Teach Your Children. And can you hear the years? Can't know the fears 
Let your elders goodbye And so please help them with your youth They seek the truth before they can die Teach your parents well yeah, another great song. This is one I knew growing up. It's one of the more popular tracks from this album. But I didn't know the backstory until doing some research for this podcast. At the time, Graham Nash was really getting into art, especially photography. He mentioned in his 2013 autobiography that this song was inspired by a photo that he had of a nine or 10 year old boy standing in Central Park, holding a plastic grenade clenched in his fist. And Nash couldn't help but think that if it were real, the kid probably would have thrown it. In regards to the photo, Nash stated, the consequences it implied really startled me. I thought, if we don't start teaching our kids a better way of dealing with each other, humanity will never succeed. Yeah, did you pull a picture of that photo up and I did I saw that yeah 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 yeah, that that was quite a emotional image the photographer was Diane Arbus was her name she had a tough life I won't go into details for her but she died young um, and a lot of her photos focused on difficult images like that and for whatever reason that really spoke to Graham Nash and inspired him to write this song yeah that photo reminded me of what started as a Facebook group that's become pretty popular now. Have you heard of Humans of New York? Yeah. It started as going around interviewing people in New York, and I think they go nationwide, maybe worldwide now. But they, they get they get the person's story, and then they always take an image like that of the person standing there. Sometimes it's doing something meaningful to what they shared about themselves. For example, checking at a, a store counter or shooting hoops at a a playground or something else meaningful but a lot of times it's just them standing there looking at the camera and then there's a write-up of of something that uh, the person gathered from them in their conversation and uh, this really made me made me think of it like if you were to put words to that photo and ask that boy what was going on in his head I mean from a a nine or ten year old kid who knows what he would have said but Given the social climate of, of the time, you can see why Graham would have looked at that photo and and had that uh, impression. Definitely, yeah. And the message of it is kind of bi-directional within the generations. In the first chorus, he says, Teach your children well. Your father's hell did slowly go by. And feed them on your dreams, the ones they picked, the ones you'll know by. And then on the second chorus, it says, Teach your parents well. The children's hell will slowly go by. So he changes the message as if, as time progresses, it's the younger generation giving something back to the parents. That there's, there's a message to be said from both directions. Yeah, I picked up on, on that as well. It's almost a, a reversal in perspective. And you, you could look at it generationally in that it's really difficult for kids to understand their parents fully and their experiences because they occurred in a time that they can't relate to because 20 or 30 years has passed. And to the same token, it's difficult for parents to fully understand their kids as they develop because they're growing up in a time that's not like when they grew up. So there's always this disconnect. But I think you can also look at it specifically in the moment as well in the sense that 
when kids are growing up, the parents are learning something about themselves via raising these children. So it's a bi-directional process of learning or a two-way street that's constantly happening within the relationship of, of children and their parents. Yeah, I think I'm more tuned into those words now than I would have been <laughs> any other time in my life yeah. on the eve of becoming a dad in about a little over a month here. I think that's maybe one of the things that excites me the most and also scares me the most is to think about how this little guy is going to be, you know, he's going to be like me. He, he's going to like some of the things that I like. I'm going to get to share some of the things that I'm passionate about, you know, music being mm -hmm. one of those things. Yep. But figuring out how to detach yourself from that and know that they're their own person, you know, that, that line, the one they picked, the one you'll know by. It tells me that if you're paying attention, if you're watching your child grow, you're going to know where those dreams are taking them. And that's something that just happens organically, and you have to pay attention to that. Otherwise, I think it's easy to get swept up, or I assume it's going to be easy to swept up in thinking they're just an extension of you. Them on your dreams, the one they picked, the one you know by. Yeah, you have to guide them, I, I suppose, to some extent, but not too much that you restrict them from doing what, what feels natural and... Uh, that becomes their destiny. And I, I, I suppose you start out with a little bit more control and then slowly let that go as they grow up and start to think for themselves. But you'll figure all that out over the next 18 years, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'll have it all figured out by then. I like that there's not any monumental answer to all that as there likely isn't for any parents. I, I think just look at them and sigh and know they love you is probably a, about as good of advice as you can get, whether you're looking in the direction of the child talking to the parents or the parents going back to the child. I think there's going to always be some disconnect, but at the end of the day, hopefully you can at least know that the other person loves you, even if you don't always understand that. Yeah, those lyrics stood out to me as well. And to mention what comes before the line you stated there, don't you ever ask them why if they told you you would cry? And then as you mentioned, so just look at them and sigh and know they love you. Every kid has heard their parent at one time or another uh, in response to you asking them why, because I said so. Mm -hmm. And as a kid... You know, it's it's frustrating. You want you want answers, you want explanations, but sometimes you know e either you don't have enough experience, knowledge, and maturity to understand the answer, or it's something that the parents probably don't want to share with you. And reflecting on the Vietnam War, the social unrest, a lot of tough things that were going on at the time that parents raising kids would have had to deal with, maybe there were some some messages or things that they taught them that they had to do that they didn't want to give them the answer because if they told them why then then you would cry or you wouldn't understand or it'd be too complicated yeah or even you know you're talking about the vietnam war but depending on how old the children are if we're talking about the the children of the 60s and 70s your father's hell could have been world war ii or the great depression or just the oh, yeah. struggle that they had sure. through I life in general that. so so if it's coming down from that generation to to these guys, that might have been their their hell, the part that they couldn't understand. 
Yeah, totally. I texted you on Friday when I left work downtown San Francisco. I My last patient of the day had canceled, so I had a little extra time, and I, I looked up on my phone. I wonder how far away Wally Hyder Studios is, and it's changed its name to Hyde Street Studios at this point, but it was only a couple BART stops away. It was the other direction, but I decided it was worth it given the fact that I've had this podcast coming up and a little extra time with my last patient spot open. So I took a little trek over to what was Wally Hyder Studios. I took a couple pictures and sent them to you. It's not in the best part of town anymore, but there's a little plaque on the ground commemorating some of the great albums that were recorded there in the 60s and 70s. One of the great albums was The Grateful Dead's American Beauty, which was actually being recorded at the exact same time as Deja Vu in Wally Hyder Studios. Wow. Which is incredible. But what an amazing opportunity that presented. And with the Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia just in another room, Stephen Stills reached out to Garcia to play a pedal steel on this song. And Garcia was honored to be asked, but he also protested, saying that he was kind of a novice on the instrument. But he did agree to give it a try. But he wanted to hear the song first and kind of play along with it as a warm-up. But Stills secretly rolled tape. So what you hear when you're listening to that slide guitar on this song is Jerry Garcia hearing this song for the first time. When it was done, Stills said, yeah, that's perfect. Garcia said, oh, no, let me do it one more time. And Stills humored him, knowing the entire time that he was going to take that first take. What, what an amazing uh, guitarist, Jerry Garcia. I had no idea that he was on this album, so that was a really cool, fun fact uh, for us to discover. And I'm jealous you got to go to the studio, man. That's pretty awesome. I wish I would have checked that out while I was there. I just felt like I had to go touch the door and <laughs> yeah. take a look. It really did give me a different excitement for this album. I, I feel like, I mean, even though it was 50 years ago, I, I feel like I was there to a point it was a really really cool experience just to stand there and then walk away and go all right i get to talk about that yeah in a couple days imagine being yeah, able to go back really in time neat. and actually be there witness the construction of two amazing albums two amazing bands sharing the same space making music really incredible and we talked about it a little bit just the differences in personalities Stephen Stills was definitely the perfectionist, in some ways the leader of the band. We mentioned before this album on their debut, he was playing many of the instruments, which is why they had to get some other musicians to come along with them when they started touring. But because he was such a perfectionist, there's times coming up in some future tracks where he just painstakingly went back and overdubbed stuff until it was perfect. But somewhere in, in there, Stills must have a sense of when something's sort of perfectly imperfect because he heard this once, and even though Jerry Garcia didn't think it was the perfect take, and when you listen to it, it's beautiful, but I can tell there's some maybe some unconventional endings in some of the notes that don't sound like I would have expected it to go, and I think it gives it a really interesting uniqueness. But I can see why Garcia might have said, oh man, that was just a rough take. Somewhere in there, Stills must know the difference between when something really needs to be perfect and when something is perfect in its imperfection, and this seems to fall in that latter category. And know that 
it was really cool to have Jerry Garcia on this song, and that wasn't uncommon in the late 60s, early 70s folk scene. It was a tight community, again, that Laurel Canyon mentality. And you can hear members of Grateful Dead guest on future Crosby, Stills, Nash records and some of their solo ventures. They were all really good friends. And if you ask Grateful Dead what inspired some of their vocal harmonies that start appearing with American Beauty, the album they were working on at the time, and then their next album, Working Man, Man's Dead, they will let you know they were very much inspired by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yeah, that's something really cool. We mentioned Laurel Canyon earlier. There were so many bands, up-and-coming bands. There's some really cool documentaries. Yeah, definitely. The The one I'm most familiar with is called Echo in the Canyon. Yes, that that's a great film. Just yeah. phenomenal to... You know, think about all of those artists who were up and coming, who weren't who weren't famous. They weren't legends at the time, obviously, in the 70s. They are now, 50 years later. But to think that they were all living in the same place and all gravitating toward that area is really cool um, to think about that. I don't know if something on that magnitude really exists today although i did see that laurel canyon does still serve as a place for musicians and there is still a little bit of that vibe being carried on uh today yeah yeah you know i I think it really was magical and unique that doesn't mean that something just as great hasn't come up in a different form i think one of the fun things that we'll talk about as we progress with different genres and different time periods as we expand our music knowledge and there was a lot of little pockets of you know the punk scene and the grunge scene and you know Motown all those different things that had some regional influence and that's one of the things that is a little bit lost now with how interconnected we are from an internet and social media standpoint sometimes location and and sound don't go together in the same way that they did back then so I would say probably nothing quite like Laurel Canyon, but I hope we get to talk about some of those other music movements, different time periods. Yeah, that's a good point. Proximity isn't really a requirement anymore to form right. a band. You know, we yeah, have, and there's positive and negative about that. Right, uh, yeah. I mean, we, ha- we have the technology for people all around the world to get together, video chat, come up with an idea, go back to their own studios, record the tracks, layer them together. Which, oddly enough, is something that happened on this album as well. We'll probably get into this, but... Yeah, Young especially was right. doing a lot of his stuff yeah. on his own. Yeah. But like you said, good and bad to it. It's it's really cool and special that today we have the technology for people to do that. Imagine if that existed back in the 60s and 70s. Who knows what what would have been created. On the flip side of that, one one drawback is that it's not as personal you don't have that human connection to get together in a studio or or in somebody's house in the basement in laurel canyon pull out some old dusty guitar from the corner and just play raw music for people but it is what it is that's that's part of evolution and you know that this album and us us talking about laurel canyon and the and the the movement of the 60s and 70s wouldn't be as special as as it is if it weren't for the the progression and the the contrast and how we live today so it's kind of a nature of you know how things work exactly yeah all right well we move on to a little more carefree but there's still some some deeper 
meanings to it. This one is titled Almost Cut My Hair. But I'm not giving in an inch to fear. Yes, I promised myself this year. I feel like I owe it someone. Let off the album with a Stills song, went to Nash song and Teach Your Children. This is without question a David Crosby song. <laughs> without question. Almost cut my hair, exactly. Yeah. This is one of the few recorded with all four members present in the studio at once. And this one was done with one take. That's awesome. Did you pick up on the very beginning before the music starts where somebody in the background says, I will now proceed to untangle the entire area. I will now proceed to untangle the entire area. <laughs> yes, and I was pouring through as much as I could to find it. The, the closest thing I could find, now this was me talking to somebody from a CSNY Facebook group that sent me a clip after asking that question to the group, but he said it, it's a short clip that was set at the beginning of the recording of a song called Horses Through a Rainstorm, and it was then taken and added to the beginning of Almost Cut My Hair for Deja Vu. I couldn't get any definitive answers. Did you read anything about that? No, I didn't do any research on that, but I think there there might be a connection to the song, and it should be taken in a, a literal sense that he almost decided to cut his hair because it was getting difficult to manage. You know, untangling this mess of hair is quite the process. And that's exactly why I ended up cutting my hair. It got to be way too much. Shane, your freak flag is not flying anymore. <laughs> no, but it's there in spirit. I'll, I'll tell you what, when we, <laughs> when we started this podcast, I didn't think your hair was going to make it into every episode, but it's made a few so far already. it pretty much it's, it's, All of them? It's, comes up more often than I would have thought. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thought, though. It, maybe it does have deeper meaning, or maybe he decided he'd apply it to that after the fact, because it sounds like that song, Horses Through the Rainstorm, existed before this, um, but maybe it made sense to, to apply it because of, like you said, hair being entangled perhaps yeah it could be yeah i'm not sure what the connection to that song you mentioned would be except for that they heard it and and thought it was fitting to start out the song here but it does weave in well with the rest of the the lyrics i, I love the part at the beginning where he says it's getting kind of long <laughs> mm -hmm. you know like from the very beginning this is a really playful song it's getting And Crosby has reflected on it, saying, it wasn't my proudest moment. I, I don't really think the, the lyrics are that great. Uh, in fact, uh, during this time, the, the members weren't always getting along the best. And they were critiquing each other's uh, contributions. And that was part of the friction that was, that was happening within the group. And Crosby had told Rolling Stone magazine that he kept Almost Cut My Hair on the album despite having strong protests from uh, Stephen Stills that it shouldn't make the cut. He just, he didn't think the vocals were good enough. But, you know, as the dust has settled, they look back and say that it, it, it had uh, its significance on the album. Uh, lyrically, I think it really does have a, a great 
message and to come full circle back to the opening where the clip from the song you mentioned that says, I will now proceed to untangle the entire area. After he says it's getting kind of long, he says, I could have said it was in my way. So he's hinting at it becoming difficult to manage, to have to untangle, to work with and deal with it. I could have said it was in my way. But then he says, but I didn't, you know, answering the question. I almost cut my hair, but I didn't. And I wonder why I feel like letting my freak flag fly. You mentioned the freak flag already. That was a a term that Crosby is often credited for coining. However, it was also on Jimi Hendrix's song, If Six Was Nine, that was released in 1969, the year before. Yeah, he said, I'm going to wave my freak flag high, is how he said it, yeah. White-collar conservative flashing down the street. Pointing their plastic finger at me. They'll overshoot my kind of drop and die, but I'm going to wave my freak flag high. Right, yeah, so I don't know if Crosby had floated that term around and Hendrix picked up on it and put it in his song or maybe Hendrix was the first and and Crosby used it or it was just something floating around in that community of people in that counterculture movement but back then freak was used by those people in that cultural revolution as a a term of pride for for people who wanted to look or act differently uh, from the mainstream and it even goes a step beyond that in that it was a, a symbol of protesting the war mm hmm because when soldiers were were drafted and had to join the army they had to cut their hair and and still to this day there's there's hair standards it has to be a a certain length letting that freak flag fly keeping that long hair was kind of a a symbolic uh, representation of going against the, the the military involvement the vietnam war and and really government control or or, or mainstream the system as a whole so there's the line in the song that says and i feel like i owe it to someone so so that could be owing it to those people who got drafted who are the unlucky ones in this situation now where they're at war and they can't have long hair they can't have their freedom they can't do the things that that crosby stills and nash and and anybody who wasn't directly involved with the war were able to to do during that time. So, you know, he thinks about untangling his hair or cutting it off because it's a mess and and it's getting too difficult to manage. But then he realizes, no, I gotta I gotta keep this. This is a symbol. I gotta do this for for the others because clearly what they're going through in the war is a hundred times worse than me having to worry about untangling this hair. I feel. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, and it was a huge symbol back then. I can't think of anything quite like that since that you, you know, wore on your body. I mean, I guess tattoos and 
that might signify that. But even a lot of that's becoming so mainstream that back then growing your hair out, it was definitely a division between which side you were on. And that was an important thing to signal to the world. It's worth noting these lyrics were written soon after Crosby was arrested for possession. And so that line with the police look in my rear view and seeing a police car may, may have been inspired by a specific event. But imagining him sitting down and writing these words after getting in trouble thinking, man, maybe I should straighten up. No, no, I'm letting this freak flag fly. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to change who I am. This, that was a good example, too. You mentioned that Stills didn't like this song. He thought the vocals were bad. That's another good example of, of what I was talking about before, where he was such a perfectionist in certain ways. Like in this one, it, it weren't good enough. Whereas with the steel guitar that Jerry Garcia was playing on Teacher Children, and then another song coming up where a mistake is made that he left in, he despite the fact that he's a perfectionist, he's still got some eye on like, all right, this should be one way versus the other. He got outvoted on this one. The rule that we had at the beginning that said whoever writes the song has final say, that was rule number one of two. I guess Crosby used that card on this song to, to keep it in. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, li- I like it. I I really like the the funk elements in this song, how it's you know, a little more intense and, and direct in the way uh, he's singing. And part of that, it's it's... Uh, a different singer than we heard on the first um, two tracks. But I think to this point in the album, it's kind of cool that we have the contrast of an opening track that has really good harmony and that hangs its hat on very good vocals, uh, almost like a choir uh, singing their parts really crisp and clean to uh, another track, the second track that's a, a little slower, more simple, probably more lyrically driven than than music and uh, a little more folky and then now we pick up the pace a little bit and, and get some rock elements in there so already less than a third of the way into the album we've had a really good variety of sounds uh, with contributions from everybody except a uh, guy we'll get to talking about here in a little bit yeah we mentioned that neil young is on this one this is one of the few recorded with all four members in the studio that's right but you really don't hear him that much he doesn't shine yeah yeah i mean it's it's all crosby on the on the vocals here and and even though the subject matter of this song like you said is kind of silly in a way i think what really stands out on this one is the emotion that crosby just has in general right at this point in the recording studio as we mentioned christine hinton had just died One thing we didn't mention is we mentioned that each member has one song per side. This is Crosby's song on this side. But both of Crosby's songs were written before Christine's death. He couldn't bring himself to write any music for this album. So this song existed prior, and it's kind of just all he can do at some points just to show up without sobbing uncontrollably in the studio. In fact, he did a lot of that. And I think you can just sort of almost hear him cracking on this song, even even if it's not about Christine's death. That's top of mind for him. And I think some of the emotion is displaced and related to that as well. Yeah, I think you're right on that one. Last thing I want to mention on this song is If Six Was Nine, that Jimi Hendrix song, was on the Easy Rider soundtrack, and it was a movie that starred Dennis Hopper as a guy named Billy, 
and he was a character based loosely on David Crosby. If you look him up, Dennis Hopper looks a little David Crosby in this movie, so that song kind of comes full circle again. Ready to move on to track four? Let's do it. Track four is Neil Young's contribution to the first half. This song slows it down a little bit. Beautiful song is called Helpless. song neil's neil's voice is so sweet and pure i mean it's such an iconic sound anybody who follows music uh can recognize that uh, immediately definitely unmistakable yeah and it's it's a really good addition even though it stands out from the harmonies of crosby stills and nash and his voice and singing style uh, is different than them it, it blends well and i think it makes this super group even better So the song starts out by saying there is a town in North Ontario with dream, comfort, memory, despair. When when Neil was four, his family uh, moved him and his brother to, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this correctly, but Omimi, Ontario, Canada, which Neil describes as a a nice little town, a sleepy place, um, as he stated before. Everybody knew everybody. You know, it just uh, kind of had that that uh, small town feel to it. But you know, overall, this is a reflection on some trying times in his childhood. It's a couple in particular. At the age of six, Neil was diagnosed with polio, hmm. and it was significant enough that that his parents decided to take him uh, to Florida for a year, hoping that uh, the warmer weather down there would would speed up his cure. Uh, I I didn't see how how much it affected him how it affected him or if it uh, had long lasting effects i know polio was one of those conditions that had such a spectrum of of uh, issues and uh, some were some became more chronic um, than others whereas some people recovered from it i assume what we know of him and his stage presence that it didn't have a huge physical impact on him but but uh, certainly a, a difficult time as a, a child and and then jumping ahead 10 years after that his folks uh, divorced and he went on to live with his mom uh, while his brother Bob uh, stayed with his dad so you know this is a reflection on him as a child in this small town dealing with a pretty significant disease at the time and then also coming to terms with his parents splitting up and uh, just kind of feeling like he didn't have much control over the situations and a little bit helpless oh interesting I actually didn't know the backstory to what helpless meant I did read, I think you're saying it right, Omimi is actually south 
Ontario, so there was a lot of question as oh, to why. I didn't see that. Okay. Yeah, why he said there's a town in North Ontario, but Young had said that it just references more of the idea of a town. I guess he just probably liked how it sounded better. There is a town in North Ontario. Extreme comfort memory to spare. In my mind, I still need a place to go. All my changes were there. He didn't expect people to have a podcast and go look up all the details and fact check. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he probably knew somebody was going to pour over it, and people certainly have before us. But he liked it that way, and that's how he he wrote it. But yeah, South Ontario, I think, is really where he, he grew up. Yeah, it's really a beautiful song, though, that the way he sings helpless and that repetition, it it feels helpless. We just moved from the Almost Cut My Hair, which was done in one take. And in contrast to that one, this one just took countless attempts to get right. Young kept the band there until the wee hours in the morning, until they could finally perfect it. And then even prior to that, this is actually a song that was recorded with Crazy Horse, and he could just never quite get it right. In the words of Graham Nash, he said, it took us a long time to come down from the speed of the cocaine to do a slow song. Young wanted the song to sound slower and sludgier, and he kept feeling Dallas Taylor and Greg Reeves were rushing it. This is another good example of a song that has personal meaning and connection to the artist with Neil's childhood, but the lyrics can also be extrapolated and applied to other events of the time and issues people were dealing with and the fact that they may feel helpless to some degree as well surrounding the Vietnam War, social unrest, other political issues that were going on at the time and connect to the song as well. Yeah, definitely, because that's where my mind went. I didn't realize this had childhood connections for him. And the only line that I picked up on that was the all my changes were there line that made me think of kind of like the your coming of age years, all, all my changes. But otherwise, I was thinking of helpless just being that word on everybody's mind, like you said, in, in reference to the Vietnam War. And then I was going from there thinking about like big birds flying across the sky, flowing shadows on our eyes. I thought maybe those were like fighter planes. Oh yeah. I was wondering what that was. That could be. And now that I think about it, now that you mentioned that maybe present day or not present day, but 1970 Neil Young, maybe he was reflecting on certain aspects of his childhood that were safe, comfortable and easy the the small town the the community feel the simplicity of life and that now he's an adult and everything going on in the world removed from that isolated place now he's feeling helpless and thinking about you know the memories from from home and and how that was a different time in his life that quite the contrast to uh, reflecting on the aspects of his childhood that would make him feel helpless at the time reflecting on that story but Certainly it could have more present context to when this song was written. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think Neil Young might be the hardest person for us to get into somebody's head because he's, we talked about Stills being the perfectionist and Crosby's obviously the stick it to the man archetype. And Neil Young is definitely the mysterious outsider. I wonder sometimes if he even really knows for sure what he's talking about in each one of his lyrics. I think sometimes just the feeling is more important maybe than a specific message on any song. Yeah, I think you're right on that one. We're moving on to the last song on side A. This is a Joni Mitchell cover. The song is called Woodstock. As you mentioned, this is a Joni Mitchell cover of a, a song that she wrote in response to Nash's description of the events surrounding Woodstock. Stephen Stills sings lead on this, and it's a really cool twist on the song. It's a nice uh, rendition. Woodstock was probably the most iconic music festival of all time. Not probably, it yeah. was. In August of 1969, it was held in Bethel, New York at Max Yasker's Farm, who makes an appearance in this song as well, who gets a nod in the lyrics. 100,000 tickets were sold, but nearly 500,000 people showed up. Wow. It was a huge festival on his dairy farm. It was the, the perfect rolling terrain that created acoustics and the amount of space that they needed to accommodate that large of a group. So it worked out really well. It was a four-day festival and Crosby, Stills, and Nash performed there. So their experiences and the stories that Nash brought back to Joni, who he was dating at the time, inspired her to write the song. So calling it a true cover maybe isn't quite what we would normally think of as a cover because, I mean, although it was her song, she wrote it, she sang it, Nash was intertwined in the song originally. So for him to then sing her song, you know, there's kind of a, a shared connection and so it's kind of cool for them to come back and and cover it yeah definitely it's amazing that she wasn't there i think she captures it so i mean i wasn't there either but just the words that she uses you know we are we are stardust we are golden we got to get ourselves back to the garden crosby said even though she wasn't there she captured the spirit better than anyone who was there i thought of a better way to to explain it it, it was her song she wrote the lyrics and sang it but in a sense, it was almost like a good writer listening to somebody telling an event from their story so that they can do an autobiography on them. Mm. So the, yeah, the, the yeah. lyrics, the story is all inspired by what Nash was telling her, but she creatively put it down on paper and turned it into a, a beautiful song. 
That's a good point, and that does add a really cool element to this song. Mm-hmm. Neil Young's on the guitar at the beginning. This this one is, again, an, a true group effort. All of the members are on this song. I mentioned that Neil Young's only on five of these ten songs, obviously the two that he sings on. This is one of the other three that he also plays on. And Joni Mitchell was present in the studio while they were recording this. Oh, cool. I, won- I wonder what she thought of it. I was, I was about to ask you which version... Uh, you like better oh man that's such a that's a hard question i think when Joni sings it it's got a little more earnestness but this song this version obviously is the most iconic and so it's hard for me to divorce myself from that i know woodstock as a csny song and i think it's hard for me not to think of it that way but i do really love her version i came upon a child of god he was walking I think I probably heard hers first and was more familiar really? okay. with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you said earnest. I think that's a good word for it, and why I probably like it a little bit better. It gives me that feeling of of, of youth and the spirit that was intertwined in that counterculture of hippies all joining forces to go to New York to this dairy farm to put on this four day music festival centered around love and peace and togetherness social justice and and even elements of this moral superiority or or a self-righteousness of sort in that harmonized fashion of everybody coming together for a, a cause it feels like the song should be slower and depict the the personal um, connection the deep the spiritual part of that Woodstock experience for all of those who attended. Um, but on the flip side, the, the Crosby stills Nash young version of it sounds more like the, the rebelliousness of what was going on at the time. Uh, the more, yeah. the more intense, let's, let's stand up for what's right. Let's speak out against the war. Let's, let's really make our voices heard. So, that, so that whole counterculture movement was a balance between people who wanted to really foster harmony, love, and peace, but at the same time, speak out against a larger group of people who didn't think like them. Right. Yeah. But I think Woodstock serves as a very great example that you can bring a lot of really contrasting people from all over the country together. And if they all have their mind focused on peace and love and and togetherness, they can make it work. There's obviously a lot more to the story of Woodstock, but the overall message that came out of that was was that um, 
people come together over a common cause and get along, they can do good things. There's a documentary on this that was released in 2019, 50 years after the festival titled Woodstock, Three Days That Defined a Generation. And I highly, highly suggest finding that and watching it if you have not, because it's it's phenomenal and it it's really interwoven with so many great albums that came out of this movement from the 60s and 70s. That's one that I really need to watch. I, I know you mentioned that as being a good documentary. I've seen a lot of documentaries from that era. We mentioned Echo in the Canyon, talking about Laurel Canyon, but man, I want to see that one. It sounds really cool. You, you said it so well. I mean, it was almost like a religious movement, wasn't it? Yeah, in a sense, but not so much. Um, you know, in a in a true religious sense, maybe maybe more more spiritual. You know, there was some type yeah. of higher being yeah. or higher force, but I don't know if it was um, mainstream religion. No, it definitely wasn't mainstream religion, but just that, just the energy behind it. Spiritual is probably a better word. Even that line, "I came upon a child of God." You know that that would be a phrase that you wouldn't necessarily think of as just describing somebody that you see as a kindred spirit. You know, it does bring almost a religious element into it. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I love that line, uh, you know, um, envisioning somebody making the walk to Woodstock because they weren't expecting that many people. And it was, it was a small town. I don't know the population of Bethel, but it was a very small town. It was the most action that town has ever seen. And yeah. people had to park miles away, and they just they just left their cars, uh, mm-hmm. like all over the town, miles from the town, and people would would just walk uh, for hours to get in there and get their spot. So I can imagine Nash seeing somebody, maybe a young kid, a seventeen year old kid, walking by himself on a mission, guided by some spiritual force, wanting to join in with all these other like minded people. Uh, for the for the better good of humanity and and describing that to to Joni saying you know it was like a child of god just um moved by the spirit and and making their way all these people flocked to this festival and so in a way it was religious in a in a sense you know that whole unification for a similar cause or purpose Yeah, and, and that line where they start walking together, I, I think mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's symbolic yeah. of the the two. It seems maybe a frivolous line, but I think it's representative of those two coming together. And then even lines like, "Come to lose the smog," maybe figuratively losing whatever might be blinding them, or or literally the s- smog of urbanization and and uh, changes in the environment, and then just getting back to the garden. A lot of really cool. Lines. I mean, jo- Joni Joni deserves all credit for this the song's beautiful but the lyrics i think are pretty amazing on this one yeah you mentioned the smog of the city that's an issue going on at that time in the counterculture movement that i don't think we've mentioned yet and that's the environmental awareness they were really concerned about overpopulation and not not taking care of the environment industrialization and, and the machines taking over everything so in a sense, they were getting away from all of that, uh, escaping the smog, getting themselves, getting themselves back to the garden, 
another potentially religious reference uh, with the Garden of Eden. Mm, yeah. But I think, uh, you know, a, an extension of that would be our roots as uh, a people oh, yeah. or, or civilization when we were living in harmony with nature and not caught up in the, the fast-paced, industrialized city life. Let's just leave all of that, go to small town New York, live in a tent for four days, and, you know, get back to the basics of life. Find a way to survive, which became pretty difficult. Uh, Imagine being prepared for possibly a hundred thousand people if everybody showed up and then getting five times that amount they didn't they didn't have food yeah they they had to rely on a lot of people in the community to figure things out on the fly and make some very basic essential survival type food um, to get people through this weekend and stills influences all over this song the arrangement was written by Stills while he was playing with Hendrix in September of 69, so there is a little Hendrix mixed in with this as far as influence. I mentioned that everybody was there in the studio for this one, one of the rare times that they were all together, and that is true, sort of. There's a little caveat to that. Stills recorded vocals that Young just loved. Young thought that they were real and emotional, but Stills, being that ever-perfectionist, thought that they were out of tune. So they're recording all night, and then the next day they return to the studio to listen, and everybody thought they were going crazy because now Stills' vocals are fully in tune. And so it turns out that Stills stayed in the studio all night, erasing and re-recording his vocals after everybody else left. Yeah, he really was a perfectionist, huh? Yeah, he, he must have some times where he knows he needs to change it, and other times that he, he doesn't, or he gets stuck on it, and this was one he just felt like he needed to change but well I'm, I'm really glad this song made its way onto the album it just it feels right for an album that has become an iconic album of the 70s to have a reference to Woodstock and everything that that meant to the people who were making this music listening to this music part of this culture that that wanted change I think it adds a more direct representation of the time and the cultural movement that was happening. We've talked about how other songs and the meanings within the lyrics can be extrapolated and applied to the times, but there was also a personal connection. This one clearly is a recount of a historical event of Woodstock that that serves as a monumental statement that was made by this entire group of people. I agree. And this song was written about, obviously, a beautiful event. But by the time this album was released, it was released after the disaster at Altamont Speedway, where the Rolling Stones put on that concert where the Hells Angels were the security. A lot of people think of that event as basically the death of the 60s. So just a reminder that even though this song's about peace and harmony, those things are not always easily achieved. Splitting, you know, if those cats can't, if you can, we're splitting, man. If those cats don't stop beating everybody up inside, I want them out of the way, man. Yeah. Hey, 
I don't like you. Hey, you that guy's got a gun out there and he's shooting at Hey, people. Yeah, and to, to this day, we're still dealing with a lot of the issues that they were fighting for back then. War, social unrest, environmental concerns. Seems like a lot of these songs, especially this one in particular, can, can apply to current events. Yeah, I think you're right about that. One of the things that I think we're missing a little bit in our generation is that shared experience of music. One of the awesome things about music today, as we've discovered when we've been picking newer albums for our podcasts, is you can find so much music out there. But flipping on the radio is not where you're going to find the best new music. And for younger generation today, there's not a lot to be united around because everybody's kind of in their own little bubble listening to music. I think anybody that says music isn't good anymore is wrong. That said, I think we are missing a little bit of that shared experience as a generation in listening to music. And I I am a little jealous of the time period that something like this came out where everybody would know the song and everybody would rally behind it. Yeah, that's well said. You got a good point. Well, that wraps it up for side A. Are we ready to move on to side B? Yeah, let's do it. Let's flip the record over. We'll listen to side B. First song on the second side is the title track called Deja Vu. I think this song is a nice way to start off side two after a little more fast pace upbeat track five in Woodstock. This one slows it down a little bit and kind of sets the mood going forward the rest of the album. Yeah, we're on to another Crosby song. And as we talked about earlier, when we mentioned Almost Cut My Hair, both of Crosby's contributions to this album were written prior to Christine's death. So no writing for Crosby leading up to and during the making of this album. Fortunately, he had a couple songs tucked away, and this is the second of those that made this album. I read in an interview that still said getting this album out was almost like pulling teeth, and that this track in particular must have had about 100 takes in the studio. So we mentioned a couple of them were, were put out start to finish really quickly but overall they spent 800 hours in the studio and this must have been one of them that they were hung up on for whatever reason 
<laughs> yeah, there's some cruel irony then for yeah. that song to be called <laughs> exactly. Deja Vu. Right. You can see them in the studio being like, is this a joke? Are, are you messing with me right now? <laughs> Should we change the title of the album? <laughs> We're cursed. Yeah, seriously. I hadn't thought about that. I read that same thing. Yeah, 100 takes. <laughs> it feels like we've been here before. <laughs> right. It's funny how some songs came together so quickly. In fact, we've got one more on this side that was just a one and done. But yeah, another one that took 100 takes. I think we talked about Helpless from Side A being kind of like that. So some songs came naturally and other ones were, as still said, like pulling teeth. So other than the obvious overlaying theme of this song based on the title what do you what do you think it's about well i was biased a little bit because i did read that this song is a, was written about an eerie feeling that crosby had when he was on a friend's sailboat he was quoted as saying i, f- I felt then and now like i had been there before i don't believe in god but i think the buddhists got it right we do recycle ah so i was biased by that image i was thinking of crosby being on that boat maybe it took place during that time or he was thinking about the lyrics when he wrote this during that time that he quit the birds and left to Florida and bought that 50-foot schooner. And maybe it was sometime around that time in Florida that he wrote this song. I'm speculating. I don't know. But that's what I was thinking about when I thought about this song because I already had that history from him talking about it. Yeah, nice. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because... I have written here in my notes on the line, we have all been here before where they just repeat that in the background, you know, where it almost feels hypnotic, like they're stuck on that point. I wrote in my notes that might symbolize some type of rebirth or the connection to the earth and that all forms of life are constantly cycling through birth and death. You know, even though it might be what should be an unfamiliar place, you really haven't been there before. It kind of feels like it. That's that whole idea of deja vu except for in real life, you know, a a deja vu moment typically happens when you actually have been there before. But if you haven't been there and it feels like you have, then maybe that is a a place or an event that your former self had experienced in a different life. If you, if you believe in, in rebirth and the connection to the earth and that we're all born from the land and we die and we recycle and people and and organisms in life all kind of is in this circular motion, this constant uh, cycling. I could see that. Definitely that came to mind with that repeating line, we have all been here before. We've talked a lot about how we like it when songs, lyrics mimic the feeling or the message. And this one was mixed in that way for me because, yeah, I latched onto that same line of we have all been here before. But then on the other hand, just structurally speaking, this song is all over the place. There's not a lot of repeating parts. It slows down. It speeds up. In some ways, it feels like a whole bunch of disjointed songs stuck together, which I really liked that about it, but contrasted that feel of deja vu. If I had ever been in before on another time around the wheel, I would probably know just how to deal we talked about that in one of the first songs too was that carry on where we said it really changes tempo a lot yeah yeah and and carry on was actually the coming together of some other songs 
So it made sense that it had that sound. This one, I don't know if there's a history like that, but it does sound like a lot of songs stuck together. But it's kind of cool. It, it takes you on a ride. It keeps you guessing. That's yeah, for sure. yeah, yeah. I like it too. And it's, it seems like that style of writing a song was, was fairly common in the 60s and 70s. And I almost wonder if that's something that people strive for, that ability you know, within a, a three to four minute song to be able to completely change pace, tempo and mix things up and have that variety instead of constant repetition. We've talked a lot about how the music that's on the radio today maybe pales in comparison to some of the music from the 60s and 70s that was on the radio. And again, there's oh, great no music doubt. today. Just got to know where to find it. But I don't think people are going to be as tolerant of a song that's got all these different parts. I, I was thinking about the other day, I heard Stairway to Heaven on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, this is has all these changes. I do appreciate it when songs can have all those different changes in time. Keeps guessing a little bit as a listener. Neil Young was not featured on this song. In fact, he wasn't in the studio at all for this one. But you can hear John Sebastian from the band Loving Spoonful on harmonica on this song. Oh yeah, that's right. All right, well, let's move on to track seven. This next song is led by Graham Nash and it's titled Our House. So as you mentioned, this is Graham Nash's contribution to the second side of the album. And this song's got a really interesting story associated with it. It's a true story of Graham Nash and Joni Mitchell when they were walking to breakfast on Ventura Boulevard in Laurel Canyon. They were going to this little deli called Arts Deli, which I looked up is still standing today. After breakfast, they walked to this antique store and Joni saw this vase that she really wanted. So she bought it, and back at home, Nash encouraged her to put some flowers in it from the garden. Since it was a dreary day, he started lighting a fire, and it was at that moment he was overwhelmed with this immense feeling of normalcy in the midst of the lives of two people that were pretty well-known and established stars at that point. Staring at the fire for hours and hours while I listen to Typically, it would be Joni playing on the piano, but this time, Graham Nash jumped on the piano, and this song just came out of him very, very quickly. Yeah, what a cool story. And as the story goes, he says the song was written in less than an hour. When you read the story and you hear people recount this day, you almost get the sense that he sat down at the piano while he was watching her pick the flowers outside and wrote this song. And then when she came in with the flowers he had the fire going and he immediately played this song for her you know like everything just fell into place perfectly but who knows stories get fabricated or uh embellished over time that's probably a better word for it but nonetheless it's a very cool visual and for me it made what what i would 
maybe consider a, a lackluster song a little more enjoyable, exciting to listen to, knowing the backstory. But it wasn't one that really stood out to me musically that I really enjoyed as much as the others. I liked it. I remember you texting me something about that. I think the uh, la 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 part bugged you a little bit, if I recall. Yeah, musically, I didn't really like that part. I thought it was uh, maybe overdone a little bit and kind of fluffy for for a group that has such musical talent vocally. It just seemed very elementary. But at the same time, knowing the backstory, when he's talking about how life used to be so hard and now everything is easy, it's painting the picture of them being in this fairy tale world now where life seems perfect, nothing can go wrong. They had this amazing day and maybe that's the impression that they're wanting to give off with the sound again matching matching the music to the lyrics and the experience that you're supposed to get it's kind of like like a fairy tale and you're bouncing around in la la land maybe that's the whole point of the song yeah i could see that and you're not the only one because Stills wanted a guitar solo in the middle of that part instead of the la-las. Oh, interesting. But if you recall from our history, the guys had those two rules, and that first rule was whoever wrote the song gets the final say. And so Nash was adamant on that part, and that's how the la-las stuck. The guys had another rule that I guess wasn't one of those official two that they called the reality rule, And that meant if a member brought something to the group that they didn't like, they could veto it. But on the other hand, if they were playing it and everybody else started already imagining their parts, they'd keep it. And that's exactly what happened with this song. Graham Nash came in with his demo that he recorded in one hour, and then it wasn't long before each guy could hear their parts, and then this song was born shortly after. common that is with other groups other bands for all of the members to equally share writing the songs and singing lead and then the others contributing after hearing it versus a group coming together and collectively going through that process or having one person who's the main writer and then other musicians who determine their parts based off of the vibe of the song that that other person has created It's a really, really good question. That's one of the things when we've gotten to ask some of the artists we've had on how some of that stuff comes together. I'm thinking of Sunny Day specifically, Sunny Day Real Estate, how interesting it was that they were all sitting around writing the lyrics even together. I bet it's kind of rare. Yeah, I'm just trying to envision the dynamics of that. I mean, I I know the person who wrote the song had, had the final say, and that was one of their rules, but they were also all very talented musicians and had the the power or privilege, the status to speak up and say, no, that's not right, or this is not up to par with, with my standards. Because they were all being represented by this album, and it was early enough in their careers that they wouldn't necessarily want to agree with somebody and, and simply be a part of it uh, to 
move on in the process or to shift the focus maybe to, to get to their song after finishing somebody else's song. But I can imagine it would be tough if one person writes this song that they're super proud about and they they say guys i can't can't wait to share this with you let's get together in the studio tonight graham comes in and he just had this amazing time and he wrote this song and loves it and then the other guys are put in a tough situation if they don't like the song because they'd have to break that to the person or on the flip side they go along with it and i i wonder they might hear it and say okay i can play something on this i know how to contribute i can sing back up or i can lay this guitar track and add to it enhance it make it a little bit better but i don't know if that means that they're giving it their full approval they might just be saying okay this is his song i'm gonna let him run with it and i'll i'll soup it up a little bit with my part versus somebody coming in with a complete song and then having them not like it and have to send them back uh, to the drawing board and just scrap it and the la la's weren't the only thing that Nash was digging his heels on on this part. He was obviously very protective of the way this song was going to sound in the end. In fact, down to literally the last note. Did you read about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently Nash had it in his head, the the note that he wanted to end this song on the piano. Problem was, Wally Hyder's studio didn't have a piano that went down that low. So instead of changing the arrangement, Nash made Wally Heider producer Bill Halverson fly all the way down to Los Angeles to find a piano that would record this one last note and then bring it all the way back to the studio to complete this song. I'll light the fire while you place the flowers in the vase that you bought today yeah that's crazy it's another thing that we think about too in terms of differences between then and today i imagine today you'd have portable equipment or you just call somebody that would record it and then email you the file and then you'd stick it on there yeah so much easier just today. the things they would have to go through to get one note yeah we go from kind of a romantic, lighter song to a little bit more of a darker song for this next one. Track eight is called Four Plus Twenty. Four and twenty years ago, I come into this life. The son of a woman and a man who lived in strife. So we're on to Still's contribution to side two. This is a really interesting song. It's a shorter song. Initially, when I was reading the lyrics to this song, it starts off, it says, four and 20 years ago, I come into this life. And Stephen Stills would have been 24 years old in 1969 when he wrote this song. So that seemed to make sense at the time. But as I was reading deeper, Stills is quoted as saying it's about an 84-year-old poverty-stricken man who started and finished with nothing in the Crosby, Stills, Nash box set. Yeah, that threw me for a loop, too, a little bit. I, I thought it was a 24-year-old speaking in present tense, but when you told me about that, I had to reconsider the meaning of the song and the perspective of that opening line. Possibly it's an 84-year-old man who's reflecting on different stages of his life and what he was thinking at the age of 24, and that maybe he was truly poor by, by definition of not having 
much money at that time in his life. But there's that line, a different kind of poverty now upsets me. So night after sleepless night, I walk the floor and want to know why am I so alone? So now he's using that word poverty, not necessarily in a financial sense, but that he's lacking something. He's alone. He doesn't have somebody with him. Maybe he's missing his health. He's missing his youth. He's realizing he's toward the end of his life. And now he feels poor of all of the things that brought him joy in life. A different kind of poverty now upsets me so. Night after sleepless night, I walk the floor and I want to know why am I so alone? Where is my woman? Yeah, and this is now just me reading these different three parts, but I took the first part as being a young man who's looking at his parents. It says, son of a woman and man who lived in strife. He was tired and poor, and he wasn't into selling door-to-door, worked like a devil to be more. So it looked to me that was like him reflecting on how hard his father worked. And he wasn't into selling And then that middle line was like maybe him a little bit later in life. I'm thinking of like middle to later age and his wife has divorced him. And so he doesn't have anything there. And then the last line is now that he's that 84 year old man embracing basically the last moments of his life. And in reading Still's description of somebody that starts and ends with nothing, kind of a sad song and it wraps a lot in just a little over two minutes. Something I read I thought was kind of cool was Neil Young's song, Old Man, where he uses that age 24 as well. Maybe it's just a coincidence. But you know that line where he says, 24 and there's so much yeah, more. Yeah, old man, look at my life. Old man, yeah. 24 yeah. and there's so much more. Old man, so again, there's an old man in the age of 24. It could just be coincidence so that Stills was actually 24. Or maybe, maybe the age of 24 had some significance to all these people and it didn't have anything to do with Stills' age and it was just the age that they threw out there and then Neil used it in one of his songs that was a similar type of song later that was released in 1972 but still that same dynamic of looking at different stages of life. Another interesting fact on this song, this was done in one take. We've gone back and forth to songs that took several takes and a couple that were quick and this is another one that was just one vocal take. Actually Stills wanted to do another one This is the one song that I kept alluding to where I was talking about how it seems like Stills somewhere, though he's a perfectionist, knows a little bit of imperfection is necessary for that humanness to come through in a song. There's a one particular part where he says, I embrace the many colored beasts, but he kind of pauses it. He says like, I, and he stumbles a little bit and there's a weird pause and he says, embrace the many colored beasts. Embrace the many colored beast. That line particularly is where Stills thought, oh, I gotta redo that. And Nash and Crosby thought, no, that's that's perfect. And I think Stills somewhere in there agreed because instead of staying up all night and re-recording his vocals like he did on Woodstock, he left this one the way it was. 
And I find myself just wishing that my life would simply cease. Well, you mentioned the 24 lyric maybe having a reference to, to Neil Young's song, Old Man. We move into Neil Young's second song on the album for side two. The song is called Country Girl. sweet song and probably some of the best writing on the album. I really like the lyrics and it highlights Young's voice again, which is always really great. But it's also a song that Crosby, Stills, and Nash contribute to as well. There's some really cool harmonies, especially that part toward the middle of the song where they say, too late to keep the change, too late to pay, no time to stay the same, too young to leave. And that's contrasted with parts where it's all Neil and he's shining. My favorite line in the song, country girl, I think you're pretty. Got to make you understand. Have no lovers in the city. Let me be your country man. It's kind of like this city boy, this rock star who comes from the fast paced life going into the country trying to convince this girl that no, he's not all the stereotypes that she's thinking. He's not this rock star with tons of girlfriends in the city that he really wants to be with her and live this simple life but I just picture this guy out in the country standing out probably dressed differently has long hair fancy clothes or shoes or something shiny that just doesn't really fit in with the country but he's like no come on let me let me convince you I, I can be your man I'll make you understand um, you know, there's something different about that country girl all right, so tell me that you know the story behind this song, then. No, I don't. That's just my okay, take well, on the lyrics. You, just, <laughs> you you dictated it perfectly, then. Oh, cool. <laughs> this is a true story, and this is a tribute to Neil Young's wife, Susan Acevedo. Oh, wow, nice. He painted he you, painted a good story. I mean, he, 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 to, he, he told it He obviously did well. <laughs> it enough for you to get it. Yeah. Neil had this house in Topanga Canyon, which is not far from Laurel Canyon, and there was this little breakfast place called Canyon Kitchen, and the owner and waitress was Susan Acevedo. And Neil fell in love with her, and they married actually during the making of Deja Vu. Oh, wow. That's a cool story. An even yeah. sweeter song now, knowing that it's authentic. They had a rocky relationship with Neil touring and recording, and the marriage would end in divorce a couple of years later, but Neil Young does look back fondly on that relationship. He said that they did really love each other. That's really neat. And the song's got three parts. We talked about how Deja Vu felt like a whole bunch of songs kind of coming together. And this one has 
It's divided into three sections. First section is called Whiskey Boot Hill. The second section is called Down, Down, Down. And then number three is called Country Girl, I Think You're Pretty. Yeah, you can really distinguish between those changes as well in the song, kind of like those others that we mentioned already. Yeah, and I think it's so cool that you didn't realize the story. I was going to ask you, see, because I was biased knowing the story, and you talked about that line where you said, too late to keep the change, too late to pay. The That line, keep the change, is said probably no more than in a diner somewhere when you're leaving money for a waitress. And I don't know if Neil Young was thinking of that and thinking of her when he said that line, but... Because I knew the story, that's what it was attached to it to me. Yeah, I guess I didn't read into the, those lines too much. I don't know for sure what exactly do you think that means in reference to this song. Yeah, I don't know. Just the, the phrase, keep the change, reminded me of a something you'd say to a waitress so it fit the story. Hmm. While stars sit at bars and decide what they're drinking That stanza that says, while stars sit at bars and decide what they're drinking and drop by to die because it's faster than sinking, also felt like what you described as like a rich city person coming to sit in at a country bar, some sort of contrast to somebody that, w- that stuck out. Yeah, definitely. This song is very reminiscent of what Young would go on to write in his future solo albums. His next couple albums were his biggest as a solo artist, Harvest being probably the biggest, and then after the Gold Rush came out not too long after this. Definitely. That brings us to the final track of the album, track number 10. This one is titled, Everybody I Love You. Last song on the album. All right, this is an awesome album. I like all the songs, but I think I'd have to say this is probably my least favorite song on the album. And I don't know, it sounds maybe a little bit out of place to me in the sense that it almost feels like it's from a different time period. Something about the sound of the guitars and then those background vocals. I I like the harmonies, but then when, I don't know who it is, if it's Crosby or Stills that comes in and does the kind of background like oh yeah that kind of <laughs> stuff it just i don't know it it uh it stands out to me I, I like it when they're singing together or if somebody's singing solo they've got something to say and just the like little vocalizations in the background i don't know it it uh it wasn't my favorite but everybody Yeah, 
Yeah, I'd have to agree. I, I got that same vibe too. It felt like they were really trying to throw a rock and roll song on there at the end to, to like diversify the album or, you know, just to show that they don't have to be defined as people who sing pretty sweet vocally driven songs that they can really jam out and, you know, really be a part of that rock and roll culture too. Because other than Woodstock, which wasn't even their song, none of the other songs in this album really have a, a true rock and roll feel. But this song, it feels like they were going for that. What did you think about the lyrics? Did you decipher any meaning from it? You know, mostly just the overarching repeating part of everybody. I love you. I thought it was just a send off to the fans and everybody listening at the end. There's not a lot else to it. It's you know, the chorus, everybody, I love you. Though your heart is an answer, I need your love to get through, you know, almost saying a similar thing. There is that first line at the beginning, know you got to run, know you got to hide. Still, there's a great life ingrained deep within your eyes. Open up, open up, baby, let me in. So it, it sounds there like he's talking to one person, like somebody that he has a relationship with or wants to have a relationship with, asking them to let him in. Yeah, I think either a former lover partner who's left and has to run, has to hide now, but he still wants to get back with that person or possibly somebody he's courting that just doesn't let him in, that won't open up. You know, he says, you expect me to love you when you hate yourself, my friend. I'm not really sure the extent of that line, but... Yeah, maybe that's just kind of saying everybody should love each other. Everybody should love themselves. That could be. It's got to start with love for yourself. Yeah, it could be kind of speaking a more to a general love audience. Song. Yeah, encouraging yeah. everybody to open up. Everybody let each other in. Talk, communicate. Back to that idea of peace and harmony. Right. It sounds like it's got a little bit of just that hippie vibe. To yeah. It in a way. But then there's also that line, when I tell you I love you, you can believe that it's true. So I... I get the sense whoever he's he's telling to believe him doesn't believe him. So he's saying, you know, you you can believe me when I say those things. So somebody has some doubt. Somebody or some group of people, there's some sort of disconnect from the the narrator of this song and whoever the audience is in this case. That's about all I got out of this one. I, I know that it was a jam that Stills did with Dallas Taylor that started it all. But otherwise, I did read too that it was just a bunch of fragments put together and not everybody was in the studio at the same time. So in a way, this one may be the least cohesive in terms of the group being in one spot. Yeah, I think you're right. Everybody I love is a man as I said you. Everybody I do. Oh, yeah. Oh, All right, well, that wraps up the album, an iconic album indeed. I'm really glad that you picked it, Shane. What made you pick it, and what was your experience listening to this album throughout the last couple of weeks here? Well, I knew it was my time to pick an old album, and you had encouraged me maybe, maybe that I should pick a classic, and when I think of classic albums, I think of the music I grew up listening to because that's what my parents would throw in the CD player on our road trips and that's 60s and 70s oldies classic rock early 70s more more late 60s early 70s and Crosby Stills and Nash is right up there I, I can't think of anybody else that's as noteworthy to me 
uh, as a group that I've listened to and know a lot of the songs. So that's why I picked it. And I'm glad I did because I knew a lot of the music I could sing along, but I didn't know the backstories. I had no idea the extent of the formation of the band. I mean, really, it was a stroke of fate or luck on so many different fronts for the four of these guys to come together from Nash being over in in England and having his band to Neil and and Crosby and Stephen Stills doing doing their thing with their bands and just how all of those stories are intertwined and how they all ended up in the same place in Laurel Canyon and sang and everybody said you guys got to sing you know for Crosby Stills and Nash to come together and then for them to have somebody suggest Neil join the group it's just really cool to think you know, so many things fell into place for this to happen. Otherwise, maybe there never would have been a Deja Vu album. Makes makes you connect to the music. That's what I got from this experience the most, is that next time I listen to these guys, I'll connect with them as individuals and understand their stories and appreciate more the, the rareness uh, of four musicians like this coming together somewhat randomly, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, because of good timing. You said it well. For me, it was the stories that stood out the most. This is probably the album that we've picked thus far that we both knew the most. I think both you and I had a history of listening to this because of our folks. So when it came to the songs, there wasn't a lot of surprises for me, but I connected with those songs in a different way because of all the stories that I learned in listening to them and in reading about this. I really didn't realize that this was you know, almost a, a magic event for all these guys coming together. And then you could almost say it was almost a forced event in some ways because there was some intention to create this supergroup. I never really realized it that way. I, I always thought it was kind of funny that they called themselves Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I was like, couldn't they think of a band name for these guys? And in re- my reading, I came to find out that that was intentional because this was like a moment for them coming together. And it's something that they've returned to over the years you know, in different fashions, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. I think they've some of them have even paired up and made some albums. But at the time, the idea was that they were all going to keep their names because they were going to all go on and do solo work from here. But to have them all come together for that intentional moment to create some amazing albums, even though there was so much going on behind the scenes that would make this tough, that just added to the tapestry of this album and all of the uniqueness to each of the songs that somehow came together in a really beautiful way. And in the timing of the 60s and early 70s, I think it was so important. And so learning about that from a historical perspective really shed new light on these lyrics and these songs for me. So an album that I've loved my whole life, I think I see in a different way now and like even more. I had, I'd never really thought that they didn't have a band name you know, like when I think of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, to me, that's that's the band name. Like the Eagles, the Beatles. It just rolls off the ton- tongue Crosby, now, Crosby, Stills, it? and Nash. Yeah, because we've said it so many times, it just feels like right. that's their band name. But if you think about it, I don't think there's any other iconic group where the band name is a collaboration of all their names. I, I, I can't think of anybody else. You got like Peter, Paul, and Mary, okay, yeah, you know, right. but, but Peter, there's Paul, not that many. Yeah, there's not that many. Yeah. Yeah, you know Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, okay, but, all right. But still, no. I mean, you're you're onto something. I, I I can't think of too many that do it that way. But even even saying something like Simon and Garfunkel to me that sounds like the band name because it's such a household name. You've said it so many times. Right. It almost becomes yeah. more than a name. It's like 
it's like MJ or LeBron or Ken Griffey Jr. It doesn't even sound like a name. It just sounds like this event or idea or um, experience. Yeah, in terms of music, it's like the name of a deity or something yeah, at this point. Yeah, exactly. So I guess, uh, long story short, my, my point was that I, I never really thought there was a backstory as to why they did not pick a band name. That was kind of interesting to to know their backstories of coming from bands that didn't work out for whatever reason and not wanting to conform to the idea of of being a band and all the pressure that comes with that, that they would be a collective group of musicians, people who like to write and sing and play together. And that's what they would do. And they wouldn't call themselves any more or any less than that. But I, I also find an interesting parallel that they didn't come up with a band name and the album is also a collaboration of all of them taking lead, singing lead, controlling different songs of the album that then got put together. So they didn't come up with a band name. The four of them could have come together, like you said, and said, hey, we're a super group. Let's call ourselves the whatevers, you know. Yep. But they maintained their individuality in the group name and also in, in large part on a lot of the songs on the album. So it's a great album as a whole and it all works together. There's there's general themes. There's unifying themes because they were all around the same age and living at a time when they were experiencing a lot of the same culture. They were in Laurel Canyon. They had similar views on opposing the Vietnam War. They had all gone through periods of love and loss. So they they had these common themes that they were singing about but yet they were still doing their individual dance and it and it came together and it happened to work and there's unifying themes but unlike a lot of albums that we've we've gone over this is definitely not a concept album and there's not a uh, a sound that you can really define it as from start to finish even though it's a short album only 10 tracks less than 40 minutes long covers a lot of different styles a lot of different tempos and pace and no, a bunch of different storylines. And I think that's because in a sense, it is uh, a collaborative work that uh, had to be pieced together in a way that it created an album. But you can tell that it wasn't four guys who sat down with a blank canvas on the drawing board and said, let's create an album together. There is a lot of individuality that had to be worked in to make it an album. The cohesiveness is the story. The cohesiveness is all of the things we learned around the album. I think if you listen to the music, it's not super cohesive. But when you learn the stories behind it, it all comes together. Like you said, the relationships, what they were going through together with their significant others, the history, the time frame. That's what gives this album context and cohesion, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and clearly they knew each other well. They spent a lot of time together and understood what each were going through at the time and were able to relate then to the song. So maybe that would be the best testament of their togetherness would be the fact that one of them could go off on their own, write a song that's really about them or something personal to them, bring it back to the rest of the group. And they would be able to understand that person and the lyrics of the song that they wrote and put music to it that works, that right. describes the feeling that they think that person would have wanted to get across in the music or, or enhance whatever they had already as that foundation to the song. That's something that, that we ended up talking about with quite a few of these songs where the music really matched the lyrics, you know, where you could, 
you could strip away the lyrics and you would probably still get a sense for what the song is about based on tempo and pace and feeling and emotion that's created by the sounds. So if in some cases the music was being driven by guys who were fairly detached from the song in terms of the, the construction and writing of it and the ideas behind it, but could still paint that picture, that definitely shows that they understood each other. You know, they knew each other well, despite the fact that they were fully capable of being four solo artists. You know, they they at least had the whereabouts to know, hey, we're better together. That You know, the, the whole is better than the sum of the parts, that idea that we talked about earlier. I mean, I, I hope they appreciate it at the time. I, I know they do today, listening to some interviews, them reflecting on that time. I think they know how special it was. Maybe, maybe at the time, I don't know, as 20-some-year-old kids, you, know, you mentioned they had a contractual agreement, so they didn't really have a choice. They had to sit down and do this. But I hope they appreciate it in the process and that it wasn't a, a chore to put it out. I mean, and if it was, certainly by now they've they've been able to reflect and say, okay, we did something pretty special. And as you mentioned, they've been a band off and on for 50 years, right? Yeah, they've stretched it out. It, it's something that they can come and return to. I, I read one quote of one of them saying, it's like waiting for the ice to freeze you can't step out too early on it so they can't just come together anytime but if they wait for the right moment then they all know it's time that they can kind of come back together and get back on stage and make some music again i was lucky enough to be present for one of those times when the ice froze and they all got together i got to see him i think in 2000 and i want to say 13 they didn't quite harmonize the same way that they did back then, but they still brought it in terms of the energy, and it was just fun to be there, listen to these songs. I knew they were important songs even at the time. Yeah, I'm jealous, man. That's awesome. I wish I would have been able to see them. Maybe they'll all do a tour again someday, and I'll be lucky enough to see them. Definitely one of those iconic bands that will stand the test of time forever. Absolutely, and so it was good that you picked it. I'm glad we tackled another big one. Yeah, it was definitely a big one. Yeah. Well, from here, we'll have our first album from 2021 next. Yeah, it's exciting. We'll have to go see what's been released in the past few weeks. Not a lot to choose from this early in the year, but that's what makes it kind of fun. All right, well, until next time, go listen to a great album. If you're enjoying listening to Album Divers, you can support our podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing it with someone else that appreciates great music. Follow and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Album Divers. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about our take on an album that you already loved or had never heard before. Do you have an album you want us to dive into? Email us at albumdiverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll consider adding it to our queue for a future episode. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you never stop discovering music that moves you to dive deeper. Until next time.